this is part three in this series. It's really about our mission, our vision, um, our identity as a church community. And so uh, what does it mean for us to be uh, this body that has this name, the City Church? What does it mean for us um, as individuals to be a part of this and as a community as a whole to be in this particular time and place? Um, because we believe that God has called us to be in this time and in this place uh, for a particular reason. And so what does that mean and what does that look like? Um, like I said, for us as individuals, but also as a community. And so our mission statement is, is threefold. It's really simple. It's revealing Christ, reconciling people, and renewing our city. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we started by looking at what it means to reveal Christ, that he is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and he's given us the opportunity to be prophets, priests, and kings, in a sense, um, in our community as well. And so Go back and listen to that, super important. Last week we looked at the reconciliation of, of people or a new humanity that God has um, sent his son into this world to bring people together to create a sort of second humanity to be able to be light in the world. And so today uh, we're gonna try to capture this huge idea of what it means to be renewing our city. Um, it's actually an extremely important piece of, of our mission. I mean, there's only three pieces, so they're all really important. Um, but this one gives sort of the big picture vision as to why it is that we believe that God wanted a church to be planted in downtown Springfield and what that actually means and looks like for us to be that people. So, uh, Revelation 21, I'm sorry, 22 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, you want to turn there, um, you can bookmark it. I also want to let you know kind of where we're going for the next few weeks too, because this isn't the last week of the series. So we're going to spend next week uh, looking into our church and, and how it kind of functions as a body. Like, what does it really mean for you to play a part in that? What does it mean for um, our leadership to lead well and to, to give ourselves to you wholly so that you can actually be equipped for the work of the ministry? So we're going to talk like details about our actual church body and how it is that we function. Um, then we're going to step into why we do this. Like, this is an extremely important piece of what we do um, in terms of ministry is opening our doors, this space right here, and why we do these things that we do on Sunday mornings, particularly singing, coming to the table every week, stuff like that. Um, and then we're going to get into our small groups, and like those are really the engine behind how this thing happens, how discipleship really takes place, um, and how it is that you can utilize your gifts and opportunities and so forth. And so we're going to dig into why it is that we do small groups and why we do them the way that we do. During all of these, these next few weeks, we're going to be... Um, we're going to have like many of our leaders downstairs just taking sign-ups for volunteering, serving on Sundays, but also for gospel communities, how it is that you can get plugged in. And even if you would like to eventually lead one, we're going to be doing a training uh, for those potential leaders. If you're interested in that, um, the dates are are up here, they'll be on our website and all that sort of jazz too. So um, keep, those, keep those future weeks in mind. But let's turn to Revelation 22. We are going to read verses 1 through 6, and then uh, I will pray and give you an outline as to where we're going. So, Revelation if you're new to church and to Christianity and the Bible, this is going to sound really, really weird. I'm just letting you know, okay? But it's okay. It'll be fun. Let's look. So the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for 
this moment that you've given to us, uh, this particular moment right now, to be able to open up your scriptures and to have our minds renewed, our hearts refreshed, to hopefully come face to face with you, with the living God. And so Father, we ask that as we think through this section of scripture and what it is that you've invited us in to be a part of in this world that you would give to us, as John prayed, soft hearts, open ears, open eyes, um, that you might truly mold and shape us. We ask these things in the most matchless, the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. So as I mentioned in my little bit of introduction there, this is a huge concept, so we're just going to dig right in, uh, not just into this passage, which is actually what we're going to get to towards the end of the sermon, um, but really we're going to be covering a lot of ground in terms of all of human history, like from Genesis all the way to this is what we're (laughs) covering today. And so today what I want to think with you about is first of all, just the basic foundational ideas. Like what does it mean to be renewing and what does it mean specifically for for our city? What are those ideas? And we're actually going to spend more time on this first point than we have in previous weeks because even though these ideas appear to be quite simple on the surface, oh, we're just renewing our city, um, you you should kind of go, well, what do you mean by renew? And even what do you mean by city, right? So what's, what's that really all about? And then we're going to look into why this matters. I mean, this is the third piece of our mission statement. There's only three pieces. It seems extremely important to us. So why does this actually matter? And then lastly, like, what, is, what does this really look like if we really are doing this sort of a thing? Now that we have some understanding of why it matters, what, what is it actually going to look like? Let's think first of all about this basic foundational idea of renewing our city. And let's think first of all about renewing, right? Renewing is one of those words that I bet for us as Christians comes with all sorts of connotation, and this is a problem with mission statements. You're limited in the amount of words that you can use, but I was really intentional when we started the church to look through different words that we could speak to the idea of bringing restoration and bringing wholeness or shalom into our city, and renew has this, there's something about it that is special, and here's what I mean, particularly the word new. Okay. So in English, uh, we have this word new that we use, uh, but we use it in a couple different ways. And because of this, we can often misunderstand what we mean by renewal or even if we say Christian renewal, um, because oftentimes what we think of in terms of the word new is just brand new in terms of time, right? So if it's new to you, it's because you just got it. You just received it or it was just made. And so you're thinking primarily about time. But if that's all we're thinking about is starting something new, like new from scratch, we're kind of missing the point. And now here's the problem. Throughout, throughout Christian history, especially over the last maybe five or six decades, this is the way that many Christians have thought about renewing or making new. They've thought about just throwing everything away. It's all going to burn. And so let's start something new. And this, this was spurred on by this whole idea, and maybe some of you are familiar with this, maybe not, of the idea of the separation between the sacred and the secular. Right? So during probably the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, Christians began to think about what it means and looks like to live in the world. And the way that they began to think about how to live in the world had to do with, well, it's not that, it should just be this. And so the idea was, if it's not purely or specifically sacred, then it can't be Christian. And so what they started to do was make everything Christian. In other words, they started making Christian music and Christian movies and Christian art and Christian, right? And so they were slapping this word Christian onto all of these things and saying, so now, because it says Christian in front of it, it's sacred, it's no longer secular. There's a bunch of problems with this. Uh, The first is just really the idea of of the word Christian. Christian's not an adjective. (laughs) Christian's actually a noun. So people are Christians. And also, it makes you wonder, like when Adam was in the garden, 
before sin entered into the world, what sort of music would he have made? What sort of art would he have made? Like if he paints a, a picture of his surroundings and there's flowers in it, does he just have to slap a little cross in the corner and now it's Christian art? I mean, how does that work, right? Or is it just by the very nature that Adam is a follower of God that whatever he does is actually Christian, right? Because it, it, so Paul will say, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God, which actually means so long as whatever it is that you're doing is covered in goodness and beauty and love, the characteristics of God, you, by the nature of being a Christian, are actually bringing forth beauty and goodness and truth and so forth into the world, right? And so the, what it is that you produce now is in a sense, even though I don't like it, Christian. Whatever you do, by the nature of following after God, is producing his goodness, his beauty, his love into the world, right? So we had this idea where the sacred secular needs to be divided, and so we just need to do everything new in terms of time, right? Beginning. But the word renew, uh, the word new actually has another connotation to it, and that has to do with freshness. And what I mean by that is like, so we were just talking about you get a new car, it's new to you in terms of time, but have you ever bought a used car? And then somebody says, well, it's new to you, right? It's not new in terms of time, but it's new to you in terms of freshness, right? Because you just got it for the very first time. In the scriptures, the word new is used multiple ways as well, but they actually had two different words to distinguish between the two. I want to show you a place where Jesus uses both different ideas of new in Matthew 9. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new, which is the word neos in first century Greek, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. That word neos has to do with time, right? So the beginning, this, this new in terms of time kind of wine. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new neos wine is put into, look at this, new kathinos wineskins. And so both are preserved. So Jesus actually uses two different words for the word new. And the second one has to do with freshness, not so much about time or the beginning of it, but something, something made new, where the beauty of something is taken out and it's turned into something really kind of different than what it was. This is the word that's used when, when John speaks about the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. Look with me there. He says, then I saw a new, not neos, in the terms of beginning, but kathinos in terms of freshness. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. But notice, it doesn't, that can't mean destroyed because he just said that this newness is actually brought out of what is already there. So, and the sea was no more. And he was seated on the throne, said, behold, I'm making all things new. Now notice that phrase, I'm making all things new, not I'm making new things. Okay? I'm making all things into kathinos something different than what it was. He's going to pull out of what is there and make something altogether new. So when we're talking about renewing, we're talking about digging into what is already present to bring forth something beautiful, true, good, amazing, in tune with who God is and what God is like. Right? That's the kind of newness that we're talking about when we're saying renew. But with that, we're talking about something huge here. We're, talking, we're, we're using the terminology city, but what we're really speaking of is whatever it is that you have any measure of influence or dominion over insofar as this creation is concerned. If you have any measure of influence, you have some ability to exercise dominion. 
And if you have the ability to exercise dominion, what we're saying in Renew Your City is to exercise your dominion in such a way that you pull out of what is broken, what is chaotic, what is destroyed, and you bring forth out of that whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, whatever is of God, and you let that thing shine. Right? That's what we're talking about when we say renewers. Now, this makes a lot more sense if you just track through the scriptures and see the way in which God does this, right? Because when I say exercise dominion, with that even comes all sorts of uh, connotations as well because people in our world who exercise dominion tend to do it with fear-mongering, manipulation. They tend to do it with violence, right? But human beings are actually called to exercise dominion in the very beginning. The question is, what is that supposed to actually look like? What does that mean to exercise dominion Well, so we go all the way back, right? Let's go all the way back to the beginning and see how it is that God does this. And to do this, uh, I've got an illustration for you, sort of an object lesson that um, I've used in the past, but it was like a year and a half ago or so. And it has to do with these Jenga blocks, right? So I think we're going to have it on the screens. I could be wrong, but I think it's going to be on the screens. So here's what I want to think with you about in terms of these these Jenga blocks and, and what this represents. Go back to Genesis 1 and notice what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and it was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So it was without form, and it was void. This has form, right? So so it's not void. So let's, let's get a real picture of what God is looking at right here, right? It's formless. It's void. And the Spirit's hovering over it. Now, when God sees this, and he sees the chaos, really, the chaotic waters, what God begins to do is he begins to speak into it. And when God speaks into this, you notice the first thing that he does, he says, let there be light, and there's light. It says, and God separated the day from the night. So what God began to do is when the day and the night were chaotic, he began to reach in, and as he spoke, he began to put things together, or form them, like what was once formless, what was once void, he's now bringing together. And as you read through the rest of the creation narrative, what you're going to see is that God puts, puts creatures in the sky, God puts creatures in the water, God puts creatures on the land, and all of this is God bringing separation. If you notice even the sea and the land, it's so that the sea cannot take over what is meant to be on the land, and the things that are meant to be in the sea will not die on the land. So what God is doing is he's forming So all of creation is this form now that God has put together. It's ordered, it's structured, right? Hebrews would consider this, or they would speak to this as shalom. We mentioned this last week where Jesus is in himself shalom, but the whole created order is also shalom. Now, as the story goes on, what we find is God in this scenario, reaches into the dirt, which in itself is chaotic, right? Dirt is about as chaotic as it gets. I mean, it falls through your hands. None of it's really together. And what God does is he forms something out of that dirt. He forms a human being. And he takes this human being and he puts this human being into this thing. On the seventh day, he enters in as well as he rests with humanity. But notice what it says specifically about human beings. So God said, let us make man or humanity in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and so on and so on, right? So God created man in his own image. And then he says this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it. So what does it look like to have dominion? Well, it looks like exactly what God just did because humanity is made in his image. So if humanity is made in the image of God, and they're called to exercise dominion, then that must be something that God does too. And God did. 
he did exercise dominion, and how did he do it? This is what he did. He reached into that which was chaotic. He exercised dominion over it. He made it into something good and beautiful, right? That's how God exercises dominion. Then God says to man, now I want you to do the same. It's really interesting that he puts him into a garden, right? He doesn't send him to paradise so that he can just lounge around on the, on the tropical beaches, right? He doesn't put him into like a park and call him to like recreate and just have fun on the swings or something like that. Or to even just go on hikes or whatever. No, he, he, he puts him in a garden and tells him to exercise dominion. And the reason for that is gardens can get chaotic, but gardens also have tremendous potential. Gardens have the potential to produce food, right? But they also have the potential to produce beauty. And as somebody enters into a garden, they, they can take the raw goods that are there and make them into something better, right? You can pick those tomatoes and you can, you can you know, harvest the garlic and you can put these things together now as you cook, you make something even greater. So you're exercising dominion over the garden, right? Or you put together different colors of the flowers and you're exercising dominion to bring beauty forth, right? So he puts humanity in the garden and he says, now do exactly what I just did, okay? Look like me, in other words, right? Now, here's the problem. When he puts humanity in this and calls them to this, they fail to abide by the structure that God has put forth, right? So one of the things God says in his forming and creating the structures, what is good, is that man needs to recognize that they're not God. So don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really the ordering of that. God saying, you're not me, but I still want you to exercise dominion. Now, they disregard that. And when they disregard that, here's how, it is, here's how it's written in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what they did was they began to run from each other, and they began to run from God. In other words, what was formed and what was good has now been brought to chaos again. So the idea that you're supposed to have in your mind is God took everything that was chaotic and put it in good order, and that's where beauty is, but humanity enters into that and brings destruction to it. God here, though, and this is what's so amazing and beautiful about God and the entire story of the scriptures, is God doesn't leave it that way. So when God entered in on the seventh day and this happened, God pursued them. And when God pursued humanity, he, he actually gave them clothes and he made a promise to them. And the promise was that he would crush the head of the serpent who brought the temptation for this darkness to be a part of the world. So God makes these promises. He pursues them. And here's what's crazy, right? As God pursues Adam and as he pursues his children, what he's doing is because this is just the nature of God is he's constantly entering in to try to create this thing or to bring good order. So God's always entering himself back in to bring forth beauty and love and goodness because that's just who God is. He can't help but do that sort of thing. It's his very nature. So when humanity destroys things, God enters in. And this happens over and over and over again. That's the entire story of the Old Testament, right? So not too many chapters after um, Adam and Eve bringing destruction, you find God looking down and he says that human hearts, there's nothing but wickedness inside of them. And so he pulls out this man, Noah, he pulls Noah out of this and he begins to reform this whole thing. He starts this new humanity. And when you read through the story of Noah after the flood, which the flood is supposed to hearken you back to the waters and their chaos, out of the flood, out of the chaos, God brings this man Noah and then he tells him to do something. And what he tells him to do is exactly what he told Adam and Eve to do. He says, be fruitful, multiply, exercise dominion. 
Now, this is what God is doing with Noah, and he's starting this new humanity. If you read through the rest of the story, you're going to notice that over and over and over again, humanity just keeps on bringing destruction to this thing. Like, they just keep on ruining things. And so God is constantly on this mission to reform things. This is actually the story of the Exodus, too. The story of the Exodus is God has created this new humanity that he's called Israel through Abraham. And this, this new humanity is actually brought into this junk that, that is really pictured as Egypt. Egypt is the brokenness. And so when, when this humanity is now inside of Egypt in bondage, God is like, well, we got to do something about this. And so God takes them out. And how does he do it? He gets them to cross through the waters. They cross through the chaotic waters. The destruction is done away. This new humanity exists. When this new humanity continues to fall apart, God gives to them laws. Why? Because God wants form. He needs the structure. He wants truth and beauty and goodness to come forth. So he's constantly giving these laws. When they, when they actually, dis- when they disobey the laws, God gives them more laws. This happens like four or five times throughout the stories of, of Deuteronomy and Numbers. So God's always entering in. And he does this throughout the story of the, the, the rest of the story of the Old Testament too. So when you've got the priests and you've got the kings, they're, they're all bringing destruction and oppression into this thing. He sends these prophets and the prophets are constantly speaking about his goodness and turn back like this is what we need. We, God wants to have this new humanity and you're, you're destroying it all. And then what happens is they go into exile. They become Egypt. They become Babylon. They become the evil nations of the world that are bringing about more destruction. But still, God is not done. And so what God does is he sends himself in. Because humanity, broken in this state, can't bring forth goodness and beauty and truth on their own, to create a completely new humanity, he himself enters in. This is why Paul will use the language of Jesus as the second Adam. And when Jesus enters in, the first couple things that Jesus does is to reveal how it is that he has overcome all of this and started something new. So when Jesus starts his ministry, what's the first thing that happens? He goes out to John the Baptist, where he gets into the water. And it's when he's in the water that the Spirit descends. Think Genesis 1, hovering over the face of the deep. The Spirit descends, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. A new humanity, as it were. And then immediately Jesus is driven by that Spirit into the wilderness. You're supposed to think Egypt, you're supposed to think the garden. And now he is faced with Satan, the same tempter that was in the garden that brought the destruction. And Jesus overcomes And then as Jesus overcomes, he begins to go out and do this ministry where he speaks about the kingdom of God, which is this new humanity. He's entering in and he's starting to build, construct something new. So every single time Jesus does a miracle, that's what he's doing. He's entering in and he's seeing blindness. Blindness is not of God. So he takes the blind man and he heals him. He sees death. Death is not of God. So he begins to raise people from the dead. Like the whole thing that Jesus is doing is constructing a new humanity until finally when Jesus rises from the dead, he conquers the whole thing to say that he is powerful enough to do it. And then he sends his spirit. And when the spirit descends on the early church, it says that with with fire upon them. In other words, this new ability. And he creates this new humanity by his spirit. He fills these people with his spirit. And then he calls them to go out and to exercise dominion. It's a new humanity now that we spoke of last week designed for this purpose, to enter in, not to leave, God never leaves, but to stay in and to do everything we can to bring forth goodness and beauty. This is why um, when Jesus is born, this is one of the proclamations made about him. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace, which is really the Prince of Shalom, the King of Shalom. And so the King has come to create a new humanity. This thing that is 
that is broken, that's darkness, that is formless, that is void, he enters in to bring forth something out of it, all of the goodness, all of the beauty, all of everything that represents God out of it and start the whole thing afresh. And this is what he's really calling us to. So when we say renewing our city, that's what we're speaking about. We're speaking about being like Jesus, which means not running away from brokenness, but rather getting in and getting in so close that we can find every little piece of beauty, of goodness, of truth, of grace, of love, and drawing it out of what might even appear as completely bad. We're drawing out everything that is like God, and we're bringing forth something beautiful. And there's a huge reason as to why this matters, a couple really huge reasons as to why this matters. And so if you look back with me, notice, what, notice this revelation that John has given. So the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle, the middle of the street of the city. So notice this. John here, he's, he's telling them about this thing that is going to happen in the future. And there's reason why he's telling them about this thing that's going to happen in the future, which is my first reason why, right there why it matters, is because heaven is our hope. But notice the way that he pictures it, the river flowing through the city. This is heaven not just as our hope, but heaven as this thing restored, this thing renewed. He's speaking of a garden city, right? So let's think first of all about heaven as our hope. John here, he's given this revelation by Jesus and through angels and so forth for a purpose. See, John was exiled to the island of Patmos and John was going to die there. John was a martyr essentially, right? And he was dealing with these seven churches in Asia Minor who were being persecuted quite a bit as well. And they were having a hard time following this Jesus because they knew that if they were to be outspoken about it, if they were to try to pursue anything other than the Roman Empire, they'd probably be put to death. And so John's exiled and God comes to John to give him a revelation so that they might continue to pursue the calling to which they've been called. So notice at the very beginning of this letter, John, he says, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Could you imagine getting this letter from John? He's like, guys, I got something to tell you. There's some people who want to share something with you. It's angels. <laughs> the angels want to tell you something, and Jesus Christ wants to tell you something. Okay, like this is the way that he starts because he wants them to know where this is coming from. He says, this faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Why mention that unless there's this reality that you're living in where the kings of this earth are trying to kill you? In other words, they're trying to kill you, but they're not really the king. They're not really the king, people. Listen, he goes on. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, this is the way John starts. He's starting this way because he knows the situation that they're in. It appears as though nothing like this could come out of the situation that they are in. And they're wondering if this is actually worth it. Are they capable of doing this? They're, they're experiencing tremendous amounts of fear, I'm sure. Uncertainty, for sure. And so then John will say this right after that. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
The Alpha and the Omega is the beginning and the end. So the one who, in the beginning, when there was formlessness and void and chaos and brought goodness out of it, he was there in the beginning, is also the one in the end who will bring goodness out of what appears to be formlessness and void and chaos. He's the beginning, he's the end, he is doing this. And he's going to use them to do it for they are his kingdom people. So John starts this way because he knows full well that it is near impossible to live this out without there being a true, tangible hope. And our hope is this heaven. That's what he's getting at here. And we all kind of, I think we all know this, that like it, it, whatever we think about the future will inevitably, it will absolutely impact the way in which we think in the present and the way in which we live in the present. There's no way around it. Whatever you think about the future will impact the way, that you, the way that you live, the way that you believe, the way that you think, the way that you talk in this very moment. It will. You are, you're always dragging the future in. I mean, think about what anxiety is, what fear really is. You don't know what's actually going to happen in the next moment, but you're consumed with it. And so what you're doing is you're dragging that into the now, and now you're experiencing fear. You're pulling the future into the present. But you also do this when, when you're thinking about goals, when you're thinking about dreams, right? What it is that you would like to become. You're looking forward in order to pursue through this thing that might feel as though you're never going to be that, right? I think about this with my kids right now. Like, children are so, like, they, they, they want to do this, and then two weeks later they want to do this, and they all cost a ton of money, and then they want to quit that and then do this, and you're like, just stick with one, right? And so the kids, they always, they, like, I want to play sports, or I want, I want to play music, or I want to, you know, and they pick something new. And the reason that they do it, this is what I'm finding with my own kids, the reason that they do it is because they don't think they're ever going to be really good at it, right? So right now I'm experiencing this with one of my children who's actually, he's, he's eight years old, and he's really good at the drums. But he's not as good as he would like to be. And because of that, he wants to quit. And I'm like, no, dude, you're good. You've got to watch some other eight-year-old drummers. Trust me, <laughs> like, you're, you're good, dude, you're good. But, but compared to, like, you know, Tim was playing here, I was like, well, I'm, ne I'm never going to be as good as Tim. Well, what makes you think that Tim was that good when he was eight? Like, he wasn't. He had to put in a lot of time. Maybe he was. Were you that good? <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't mean to. That's, I love you. I love you. Um, <laughs> um, he had to put in time and effort and energy, right? He had to put in the work to become that good. And there, had, there was probably somebody there, not just in, internally for himself, but there was somebody, some influence from beyond saying, you can do it, man. You can get there. You could be that good. Like, pursue this thing. And they're pulling out the beauty and the goodness and the truth from this person to inspire them to move on. So even though they're experiencing what is difficult, what is painful, what is exhausting, there is a possibility of pulling from the future into the now to be able to make it through this and become all of who it is that you were meant to be. And it's the very same thing with the created order. God has given to us the opportunity to look at this place, to look at other people, and to pull out from it what is the future hope, which is this. So Paul, in the New Testament, he'll, he'll write stuff like this all the time. I just want to read this over you so you can think about what, it, what this is really like. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or in 2 Corinthians, he says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice this. He's pulling from the future into the present so they can make it through the suffering, the pain, the anguish. But it's not, it's not just for them as individuals. This, this, John is speaking to this reality of the future. It's not just you getting pie in the sky even when you die. It's not this separation from the physical and the spiritual. It's not this, the, the separation of, of, of what is physical, you know, like I just, the physical or spiritual. It's, it's this now. That's why he speaks of it as a garden city. When he says that the river's flowing through the city, he's speaking about the creation. This is hearkening back to Genesis where the river was flowing out of Eden. Or if you read through the prophets, notice Zechariah says this. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there should be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Or in the Psalms, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. See, what John is, is trying to draw their attention to is that the future reality of the new heavens and the new earth is true. And so wrestle through this. Don't give up. Think about what that future is. Here's what I mean, right? Jesus taught us to pray. And when he did, he said something very simple in the midst of this prayer. He said, say this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. What he's calling you to do when you're praying that is he's calling you to think and to see the way God thinks and the way God sees. So when you look around at your world and you say, heaven come down, what you should be thinking about is, God, how do you see this? What's your vision for this community? What's your vision for my neighborhood? What's your vision for Springfield? What's your vision for this world? And pull upon the way that he sees it into the present. Because God does have a picture. He looks at this place. He looks at this place the same way that he did when Adam and Eve ate of the tree and ran. He ran after them. God is running into this place. Let me tell you how I know that. You're sitting here. If God were done, you and I wouldn't be here. Because the primary means that God has chosen to bring his kingdom into this world is by his spirit inside of people doing this work. That's the means by which he's chosen to do it. He could just snap his fingers and start making things new, but instead, he gives his spirit to you and says, go, exercise dominion. Bring forth goodness and beauty and truth and love out of this, and you actually have the power to contribute to what heaven will be. Like, you guys, there's gonna be a day when you walk around Springfield and it looks exactly the way God wanted it. That's amazing. Like, can you believe there's gonna be a day when the places that you walk around right now and you're like, oh, I don't think I'm ever coming back here. Those places are gonna be beautiful. 
They're gonna be amazing. They're gonna captivate your attention. And when we, in this time and place, give ourselves to that vision, like that day, you're gonna look at that. You're gonna, I got to play a part in that. I got to play a part in the new city of God, Springfield, the city of God. Like that's absolutely amazing. So what does this look like, right? If this is, if this is Springfield in heaven, what does that mean? Like, what does that really look like? I'm going to be real quick here as we come to a close. But if you look at John lists six things or so about how this looks. He says, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They'll need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So he's giving, he's giving all these characteristics or qualities of what this looks like in the future. Just look at them one by one real briefly here, right? He says, the tree will be there and the leaves for the healing of the nations. This idea has to do with what we were talking about last week, so I won't get into much detail, but the healing of the nations has to do with ethnicities. So when there is differences between ethnicities like we experience in this world, which bring about war, bring about all sorts of violence, bring about all, all kinds of pride, I mean, like I mentioned last week, racism, ethnocentrism, like what he's saying here is there's going to be a day when that just doesn't even exist. And so for us to bring this forth means that we play a huge part in that. We get into wherever it is that we see division amongst peoples and we do our best to bring reconciliation, right? So we talked about that last week. Notice the second one. He says, there will be no longer anything accursed. This idea of accursed is not, um, it's not about the curse on the ground in the garden where work is just going to be easy. Hoorah, I can't wait. No, this, this idea of a curse is actually about oppression, so no longer be any sorts of slavery. There'll be no longer any sorts of, of, of people pulling themselves up and pushing other people down. That, that just won't exist. Oppression, racism, these things, they, they won't exist. Slavery, they, even any form of slavery just will not exist. The lamb's throne will be there, which means that the king who is love will absolutely, fully, completely reign. The kings of this earth will not be able to reign in which, the ways in which they reign but the king who is love will be reigning. And they will see his face. Their names will be written, I'm sorry, his name will be written on their foreheads. To see his face and to have your na his name written on your forehead. <laughs> Sounds really weird. But, but the idea is that anything that gets in between you and God, which right now, oh my gosh, we're so easily distracted, our own pride, our ego, sin, just tons of depression, anxiety, like stuff gets in the way between us and seeing him. That's all going to be gone. You're going to see his face. It says, no more night. All of this is what I was just speaking of, kind of. Fear, anxiety, things that exist in those dark places, gone. And finally, our rulership completely restored. So what's kept you from being capable of being the fullest human being that you were made to be? You're going to be the fullest human being that you were made to be. Like, this is what heaven looks like. This is what God is working for in Springfield, and this is what God wants to do with us. So the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how we actually do these things. We see how they look. We've looked at what it means to reveal Christ, reconcile people, renew our city. We've looked at what it looks like, 
how do we actually do it? Like, how do we put this down on the ground and get moving towards this end? And so definitely join us for the next three weeks. But today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite us into a time of worship, which is us just responding, giving value and worth to God and who he is, and allowing him as we do so to shape us. And so uh, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given to us great hope that is not just not just an idea. You raised your son from the dead. And we can know that you are making all things new. Help us to believe that and to walk in that. We need you for this. Grant us your strength by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.